0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist.
1: And The Naked Scientist is brought to you by... How do I say this? Krolch. Somebody said I'm not saying it correctly. I don't know what it is. It's beer. Grosch premium lager. Choose interesting, not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Do you drink that stuff, Chris?
2: I have had a Grosch. 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 All right.
1: I think I may just try that. It's a
2: very very well-known brand of lager all around the world. Wonderful.
1: Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll. It's not in
2: your household, really.
1: <laughs> No, absolutely not. I've never tasted beer, actually. I've never tasted lager ever. So maybe I need to start. Uh, Chris, let's talk about this. I can see a lot of people being interested in this, a breakthrough test, test for Alzheimer's disease.
2: Well, uh, Alzheimer's disease is predicted to be the biggest scourge of humankind really in the future because as our aspiration to all live longer and be healthier is realised by modern medicine, a clean living and uh, a good environment, then we shift from having a problem of heart disease, diabetes, stroke, which are big killers right now, to the problem being problems of old age. And Alzheimer's disease is a kind of dementia and this means that uh, your brain effectively fails you as you get older, in the same way as your heart claps out at the moment or your joints get old and arthritic, as we live longer, the brain, which doesn't replace itself, the cells don't renew, the cells eventually clap out in your brain and you start to suffer from cell loss in the brain and there are various symptoms associated with that. Now, what a group of scientists have been doing is saying, well, are there any markers which we could record from the bloodstream or the cerebrospinal fluid that bathes the brain, and which, if we record the levels of them and then look at people down the down the line, are there any of these markers which seem to predict the people who are going to get Alzheimer's disease? And the reason this is important is that by the time people get Alzheimer's disease, the brain problems have already happened, and trying to restore a normal brain function from someone who's in that state is really difficult. So the goal of modern medicine is to say, well, can we predict who's going to get that problem? And then we can intervene maybe 10, 15, even 20 years ahead, which is when we think the disease starts but doesn't actually manifest itself clinically at that time because then we could give people treatments upstream to stop them getting the downstream problem. Mm-hmm. And what researchers have recently announced is that they've found a, a, a cluster, 6, 7, eight different chemicals, which if monitored in the bloodstream or the cerebrospinal fluid fluid around the brain can be used to predict with a reasonable chance of certainty, maybe maybe 90% or so, those people who are at highest risk of Alzheimer's disease. And what this now means is that, A, we know who those people might be, so we can warn them, but also we can start to explore treatments which, if administered mm. early, might stop those people or delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease in those people later.
1: Very exciting indeed. And we're talking a period of about two two years, right, Chris, before we able well, to...
2: Mm-hmm. Well, this is an ongoing pattern of research, and an ongoing programme, which people are doing all around the world, and they're using things like what we call brain banks, which are where people have donated their brain tissue, and also blood and biobanks. There are now big projects in many countries where people sign up to be part of these studies. They give a sample of blood... Uh, on a regular basis, maybe every year, every five years, every ten years or something, they also share their medical records and the researchers uh, uh, know what happens to those people. And the idea is that you will be able to marry up what the outcome was for that person so you know what the diseases were they suffered with, then you can go back to those stored samples at various times kept from throughout their life and you can look and see in there, are there any markers, are there any chemicals, are there any signals in there that point towards that person getting the heart attack they had or the stroke they had or the Alzheimer's they developed that are not present in people who don't get those diseases and this is big business now because we want to know who the people are well ahead so that we can make predictions that are lifelong and it's, it, it's a big com- big business and there's a lot of companies actually starting to do this kind of thing now one of them is based in London
1: let mm-hmm. let's go to Yasin in Jordan Fontaine you've got a question for the naked scientist good morning
2: Yes, good morning. Hi. Um, I've been doing some research, and and, and the research
1: is around gastric bypass surgery and diabetes. And the research that I've been doing tells me that uh, once a person has done the gastric bypass, there is a remission of diabetes type 2. Is this correct, and is this a long-lasting, or is it just a temporary thing?
2: I think there is benefit, and part of the reason will almost certainly be down to weight gain. Uh, Weight loss, rather. Because when you do these gastric bypass surgeries, there's a number of ways of doing it. Um, The term seems to be used slightly incorrectly under certain circumstances. Part of the uh, approach that people use is to reduce the volume of the stomach, just literally make the stomach smaller. This means that it's uncomfortable to eat large amounts of food, and this physically restricts the amount that a person can eat, and therefore physically restricts the rate at which they can take calories into their body up to a point, and this therefore reduces the amount of energy that they're absorbing, therefore they're going to lose a bit of weight. There is a more radical procedure, which is where a whole section of the small intestine is defunctioned. That means that you take a bit of the intestine downstream and you bring it up to the outflow from the stomach, and so you defunction this loop. Effectively, you cut off the corner, you short-circuit a lump of the bowel. And this has two effects. One, it almost certainly causes the amount of bowel that you have available for absorbing calories to be reduced. So therefore you do lose some weight that way. But the amount of weight loss that people see and the biochemical changes that you see cannot be accounted for on the basis of just reduction in the amount of bowel you've got alone. So scientists think that there's something else going on and they think that this in some way manipulates the uh, signalling between the bowel and the rest of the metabolically active organs like your liver and pancreas and that this may account for the improvement in the symptoms over and above uh, the, just, the, just the, the defunctioning of the bowel. And so that improvement in type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. has been documented. It does appear to be real, and it, it does appear to be sustained, and does appear to be secondary to some other change, perhaps in the microorganisms that live there, perhaps in the physiology of the bowel, when it's been defunctioned in this way.
1: Thank you very much, Yasin. Interesting question. Paddy in Parkhurst. Hi.
2: Good morning, Reedy. I have a question for the
1: Naked Scientist about the days of the space capsule. When they used to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, they had a heat shield on the blunt side. I sort of half know the answer, but I want it confirmed. What kept that space capsule in the correct attitude that it didn't sway and, and burn up? Was it an aerodynamic Negative pressure behind oh, on the, on the sharp side of the capsule that kept it there in that in that attitude at that speed
2: hello, yes, what a lovely question, mm-hmm. and I believe you're quite right i've never thought about this, but um, it's a very important point to make isn't it? <laughs> yes, they come in as a sort of they're a sort of cone aren 't they the, uh, the shape of them um, with a big flat bottom, and this is in fact covered in cork in the early days, big thick layer of cork which would Because as the spacecraft comes in, it compresses the air ahead of it, and in the same way that your diesel engine or petrol engine in your car, when you compress the air in the cylinder, this causes adiabatic heating. That's the posh phrase. You squeeze air and it gets hotter. The capsule squeezes the air in front of it, making it hotter, and in the process you fend that off with this thick layer of cork. But then the gas stream has got to flow round the sides of the capsule. And I think that what effectively is going to happen, because you've got something which is this conical shape, if it moves to any particular direction, it's going to present a very big area to the moving airstream and a void behind that moving area. Because if you imagine the tip or the point of the cone moving to the left, let's say, then any gas stream coming up on the left is going to see this very big surface and have to pushed away, because it's going to deviate the airstream that way. And this will have the effect of pushing back on the capsule to correct it and vice versa in any direction in three dimensions. So I think you're right that effectively it's a combination of it hits the oncoming gas stream which gives it a a push uh, in the opposite direction and you've got a void being left a lower pressure area behind where it's tilted away from and that will have the effect of pulling it back. So there are two sort of rectifying forces there.
1: Uh, Gerald, you've got a follow-up question about Alzheimer's, eh?
2: Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Hi. Um, I've, uh, uh, I watched the program on TV and I looked at it on the internet, on YouTube and stuff like
1: that. There's a guy, I can't remember his name now, but he wrote a book called Dead Doctors Don't Lie.
2: In it, he, shows, he tells you that the average age of a doctor is 55 years old.
0: And one of the things he says, hello?
1: We're listening to hello? you, Gerald. We, we're not speaking because okay. we're listening to you.
0: Okay, one of the things he says is that Alzheimer's is a man-made disease.
2: And people who have high cholesterol and people who are uh, are treated for cholesterol have
1: a higher rate of Alzheimer's than people who are not treated for cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because uh, cholesterol, our brain is made up of fat, and the cholesterol
2: forms the, uh, uh, the, the connections in our brain. And by reducing our cholesterol, we are in fact killing the connections in our brain. OK. Well, th- there's a something to, to be aware of with Alzheimer's disease is that Alzheimer's isn't just the loss of connections in the brain or the physical loss of nerve cells. The stunning thing and the staggering thing that Alois Alzheimer, who gave his name to this disease that he first saw in 1906, so mm-hmm. it's about 100 years old now, Alzheimer's disease, were these plaques. If you look down a microscope at a, a brain of someone who has died with Alzheimer's disease, you see these aggregates. They're build-ups. They're spiky patches of material in the brain. And if you analyse those, it's a chemical called beta amyloid. This is a protein, which is made from a much bigger protein made naturally by nerve cells. So nerve cells in the, all over the brain churn out this big molecule called beta APP, amyloid precursor protein. And an enzyme, which is around and associated with the nerve cells, cuts it up to effectively dismantle it in the same way as you would chop up sticks in your back garden and put them in a bin. Well, this enzyme chops this big molecule up. But one of the enzymes makes a smaller version of this big molecule, uh, which is of just the right length, that for some reason that we don't understand precisely, it ends up absolutely covered in this sticky phosphate material. And this then encourages these little bits of this molecule to all stick together and they aggregate and they form these beta amyloid plaques and those in turn damage nerve cells. Uh, We don't know exactly how, but we don't know if it's just the physical impact or whether the beta amyloid is itself toxic to the nerve cells by triggering receptors on the surface of the cells so the cells become too excited and die that's what's actually causing the loss of cells in Alzheimer's disease. But you're right to bring in and invoke cholesterol mm-hmm. because uh, at the same time, there are um, there's one risk factor. There's a gene called ApoE3, E4 and E2. And if you have the ApoE4 form of that gene, you have a much higher risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. And that ApoE4 gene also is linked to high cholesterol um, and so or lower cholesterol or better cholesterol handling. So there is a link between cholesterol and Alzheimer's risk but it's not exactly clear how that translates into the formation of these plaques and whether that is um, just because the cells if they've got ApoE4 spend more time getting excited so they make more of the thing that causes the plaques. Mm -hmm. We don't really know for sure.
1: Thank you very much, Gerald. Thank you. Is it John in Durbanville? Good morning.
2: Good
0: morning, hi guys.
1: Um, I just wanted to ask you, what's Chris's opinion? The uh, human beings, homo sapiens, why are we so far ahead um, technologically etc than absolutely everything else um, on the planet because we've all evolved you know, over the same amount of time but our closest relative which i suppose is the chimpanzee is there's no how you know we skyping and dstv and all that how did we get so far ahead <laughs> from our uh, our next relative
2: i suppose it's interesting john because if you look at um when all this happened. We were living in a pretty primitive way until relatively recently, if you think about it. And um, it's only because in more recent years we've suddenly had this explosion of technology and communication. And I think that's what lies at the heart of it. I think the key thing that drove that difference was an expansion of the front part of our brain so that we could form alliances and think how to work together. So group work and then communication. And I think if you put those two things together, a social species that has the power to gather together many, many individuals who can all work together and then they can share their ideas, they can share their ideals, they can share their goals and work towards those goals and... Coupled with that, if you've got communication, you also have a social hierarchy because if you have too many cooks all spoiling the broth, it's not useful. If you have a social hierarchy and and people who are acknowledged to be the leader, then those people can set goals and people will work towards it and then you've got productivity. So I think all those things probably have helped but ultimately I think the, the initial expansion of our brain and then endowing us with language so we can communicate, I think that has to be the really, really big one.
1: Thanks, John. And uh, who came in first? Let's see. It was Liz in Komiki. Lawrence, I'm coming to you next. Hi, Liz. Hi, good morning, Reedy and like It scientists. I want to know if speciation takes place all the time and there are apparently quite a lot, large number of insects who are now resistant to the chemicals that we use against them. Has speciation been completed for them? Are they separate species now or are they still the same variation of
2: just the old insect. Hello, very interesting question. So by speciation, just to be Mm -hmm. clear, you're referring to the creation of new species in nature from whatever source. Would that be a reasonable definition? Yes, yes. Yeah, so are there new species of animals cropping up de Mm -hmm. novo in nature? And the answer is yes, absolutely, because the same mechanisms that led to those organisms appearing and, and existing in the first place, they're still there, and... We're, you know, although evolution is taking place over a very long time so we're not going to see a lot of evolution in a human lifetime it's still happening and the same mechanisms are still there the genetic changes that are cropping up by chance at random in individuals when they pass on their genes from one individual to the next generation that's all still happening and in response to pressure from the environment in other words the, the environment the changing environment, the exigencies of the environment if you've got particular threats or you've got particularly Uh, beneficial things in the environment, all those things are there driving animals to change and respond. And so, yes, we are definitely seeing things changing to the point where eventually you may isolate a community of insects in one particular place and they may become their own species. And in in fact, you may even get animals so-called sympatrically evolving. You get new species cropping up in the same place side by side, owing to different selection processes. So yes, there absolutely is uh, the ongoing production of new species through natural selection evolution all the time.
1: All right, thank you very much, Liz. Another fascinating question. Thanks for asking it. Lawrence in Pal, hi.
2: Hi. As far as I understand, the oceans are salty because of the dissolved salt in the minerals of the Earth's crust as it um, erodes. So why, after all these millions of years, isn't the sea a lot saltier than what it is? Yeah, that's a really lovely question. And the reason is (laughs) that... You're quite right. So sunlight hits the surface of the sea, warms it up, gives some water molecules some energy so they evaporate. They go up into the air as clean, fresh water, land on the land. They dissolve minerals from the land and wash it into the sea. The sea, you would think, would therefore just get saltier and saltier and saltier, but it's sort of stopped getting any saltier. At about, I think it's about 5% sodium uh, in the sea at the moment. And the reason is that if you keep adding any more minerals to the sea, it's now in a sort of equilibrium state, whereby any further addition of chemicals or minerals will lead to some minerals precipitating out. They form a solid in order to extract those minerals from the water. So if you increase the amount of dissolved material any more then it starts forming crystals of other stuff or other, or reacts with things to make other chemicals that settle out as solids. So the sea's in a sort of steady-state condition. Um, that's not entirely the case everywhere, though, because if you've got a closed body of water like the Dead Sea, then evaporation can really drive up the concentrations of some of the salts, making it a, a really, really saline environment. Um, so you do get slight departures, but on the whole it's at about maximum now for that reason.
1: Pius in Sunning Hill. Um... Um, Hi Chris. Um, My question is regarding um, the solar um, technology. Um, It's heavily dependent on battery and the cost of battery is is high at the moment and the storage capacity is not that that much. Is there any new technology that probably would replace uh, the battery technology, the use of battery to improve the, the
2: use of technology? Oof, um, your
1: line is really bad there. I don't know, Chris, if you got the gist of what he was saying, or must we ask him to call yes, us on Yes, I better did, and it's okay. a really
2: important question, this one, um, because energy companies who make our electricity for us actually have a big problem on their hands. And the reason for that is that as more and more people install solar energy, then the demand for electricity during the day is going down. The stable demand for electricity during the day is going to fall radically, but at the same time there's going to be a cloudy day, there's going to be a rainy day I'm having a rainy day at the moment, we have got the worst rainstorm, you might even be able to hear it happening Uh, and this this means that uh, you're going to have dips in the amount of power that you can produce from solar systems or wind generators or whatever you've installed as your alternative energy system also you're going to need energy during the night but not so much during the day we're going to have a huge surplus of electricity we can generate during the day eventually or relatively speaking but not at night. And how do we cope with that? Well, we need much better batteries because exactly the point that's being made is that the battery technology we have is just not up to the job of being able to store lots of electricity very quickly and then release it to homes domestically and the national grids in a way that won't kill the battery. Now, some people are doing this actually by producing electric cars which have very high-tolerance batteries in them. And when you plug your car in in your garage then it will charge your car up off of your solar cells on your roof. But then if the national grid runs a bit low of power um, for a little while, then it will borrow some electricity back out of your car in order while it's plugged in, obviously, um, in order to supply the grid. And you would get paid a little bit of money for helping the grid in that way. But there is a very big push now to produce much better battery technology. And, and scientists in many, many countries are now experimenting with new chemicals, new ways of making batteries, and new operating temperatures for batteries with the goal of producing super batteries where you could dig a hole in the floor of your house, put the battery under your house alongside your water tank from your rainwater collection and all this kind of ways of, of making sustainable living. And that big battery would soak up energy when there's a surfeit, when there's too much of it, and then support the national grid and the generating capacity in your home when there's less energy around. And that's a big problem and lots of people are spending millions and millions and millions on trying to solve it true
1: okay and very topical issue for us as well i don't know if we'll have time for this thomas what do you say we won't no come on we will uh can cartilage be transplant transplanted or replaced in any ways an sms
2: yes definitely and uh, you can you can think of cartilage as the lubricating surface that protects the ends of your bones in your joints and you can definitely do trimming and repairing and transplantation of that cartilage in order to repair damaged joints. And also, what about the the discs in in your back that uh, separate your spinal bones? Those discs are made of cartilage, and when someone has a slipped disc they've got damage to the disc material which enables it to bulge and press on nerves which is very painful. Scientists are now uh, developing artificial discs uh, using cartilage-like material which can be implanted. So yes, it definitely can happen. You can also repair other tendons and things like that which are slightly different but they're still connective tissue and you can use those grafts to repair things. So uh, yes, cartilage is living tissue. It's got cells in it called chondrocytes that help to build it up and make it and maintain it. And when you move it, they go with it. So it's a living tissue that will reinvest itself wherever you put it.
1: You see, Thomas, we did have time for it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris. That's we'll right. see you again next You're week. <laughs> see you soon. Have a nice weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Naked Scientist brought to you by Grosch Premium Lager. Choose interesting, not for sale to persons under the age of 18.